Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Good morning, Covenant family. Good to see all of you here today, and welcome to those of you at home as well who are watching us from there. We're in Revelation chapter 3 this morning, continuing a series called Misdirection. Um, counseling is not one of my strong points. If you've ever been in the counseling room with me, you probably realize that after about the first hour or two, I may seem brilliant in the first 15 minutes. And then after that, you're kind of looking at me going, and now you become the guy trying to show me some mercy like this guy's maybe a little bit clueless, but I do do a limited amount of it uh, on occasion, about two, three sessions. I've told you about everything I know uh, that can help you before we need to pass you along either to someone on campus here or someone off campus whose competencies are much higher than mine. My tendency tends to be able to help you see where you are, that's A, where you need to go, that's B, and begin to kind of chart that that path for you, and then we hand you off to somebody who can actually walk more competently with you on that path. But even in my limited experience in, in the counseling room, particularly regarding couples, there's a pattern I've noticed, particularly with married couples. Uh, it, it first happens around year three, then it'll happen again around year seven or eight, then it happens around year 15 or 16, then it happens somewhere between years 22 and 25. So go ahead and just elbow your spouse right now if you're sitting next to them and you're anywhere near any of those points to just know, hey, there's, a, there's probably a transition point coming. And at some point uh, at one of those areas, there, there tends to be a loss of passion. All right, they'll come in and they'll go, something is not the way that it used to be. One or both of them will tell me that there's no romantic relationship. There's no strong affection. Sometimes they'll tell me that sex is non-existent or that when it does happen, it happens infrequently. And sometimes it's almost more obligation than, than pleasure. And the interesting thing is while they're sharing this, the vast majority of the time, the relationship has not yet reached a toxic level. Like it's not an unhealthy relationship, at least on the surface. And in fact, they've gone several months, and sometimes, particularly at those later dates, several years before they finally look at each other and admit that there's a problem. Sometimes it takes years before one or both spouses become dissatisfied with the reality that they've just described for me. And there's something that I've learned in all of those sessions. There is something worse than being in a, passionate, a passionateless relationship. That's being okay with being in a passionless relationship. That can happen in a marriage. Uh, it can also happen on the job to a lesser extent. The marriage is uh, probably the most intimate of our human relations. But even if you have a job, you know that most companies now put you on a 90-day probationary period. You know why they do that? They know that the most passionate you're going to be and the hardest you're ever going to work and the best employee that you're going to be. I mean, if you're ever going to make employee of the month kind of material, it's going to be in those first 90 days because once you hit day 91 and they stamp you somewhat secure, it's only going to go downhill from there. They know that. Employers know this. All right? And so whatever they see, if they see excellence plus 
in the probationary period, they know they'll see excellence on day 91 and beyond, right? But this is the kind of thing they're looking for. What happened? Well, there's a mentality, right? Because in that first 90 days, you're like, I've got to get this. I've got to keep this. In the dating, in the engagement period, really more with dudes than with women, but sometimes women will do this, right? I've got to get her. I've got to get him. And then the I do's are said and the kiss is done or the contract is signed and the employment is secure. Now you go, I got it. Now I can rest on my laurels, right? And your spouse, your employer, your God (laughs) says not so fast. In all of those situations, and, and here's the greater danger, things tend to look pretty healthy on the outside, right? I had a guy named Tommy that I worked with for the Dow Chemical Company before I got into ministry. Uh, how many of you use the, the scrubbing bubbles bathroom cleaner, right? You, you helped pay my salary for a few years, about 25 plus years ago, right? Tommy would clock in. Tommy was the friendliest, always had a big smile on his face, and he was always moving. Like he was, how you doing? And then he would just keep moving and moving and moving. And it took months before we realized we've never actually seen Tommy work on anything. Like, does Tommy just clock in and run laps around the plant for eight hours? Like, is that what happens? Sometimes it can look good, sometimes it can look healthy, but it it might not be healthy because inside what's happening is death is occurring. And it's happening through something that we call complacency, this feeling of of smug, uncritical satisfaction with oneself or with one's achievements. And when it comes to your walk with God in mind, when it comes to where a church is along this trajectory, that kind of thing can become very, very deadly. It can engulf entire churches. In fact, that was the nature of the misdirection that the church at Sardis was falling for. Now, when we talk about Sardis, it, it... it was kind of a unique city, still is 2,000 years later, a breathtakingly beautiful place. 2,000 years ago, it was about a four-hour boat ride from Patmos, which is the, the island where John is writing this letter, and it had a population of about 30,000 people. That was quite large, actually, for the ancient world. And, and one of the ways that it got to that size, well, well, there were two things. Number one is they discovered gold there. And if you know even the history of our own continent, you know that a century and a half ago, that's where all of California's population started to build. People ran west, hoping to strike it rich. Combined with the fact that because of its high level, uh, high altitude, its fortification, the military, the Roman military, would build a base there. My very first uh, senior pastorate was one mile from the military entrance of Fort Knox, Kentucky. Uh, My last interim pastorate before I came here to serve all of you was in Harford County, Maryland at the Aberdeen Proving Ground. Both of those, the property of the United States Army. And there's one thing I learned ministering in those environments. When a military base comes to your town, it means two things. It means prosperity and it means security. Those are good things. Those are not bad things. But oftentimes when they come like that at the same time and you have a well-fortified wealthy area and you have a church in that area, there can be a tendency toward complacency. 2,000 years later, that is still true. Several years ago when Amy and I began praying, asking the Lord if, if maybe he would have us go back into a local church context, what eventually, those prayers that eventually led us here to these wonderful, wonderful people. But, but someone sent me uh, an advertisement 
for a church in Hendersonville, North Carolina. The attraction, of course, uh, aside from it just being located along the same Blue Ridge mountain range that, that our community is located on, just a little, little further south, so the, the temperatures would have been milder, is it was within a 45-minute drive of our extended family. And so we were a little bit excited about the prospect. We opened up the ad, and, and we read that, that this being in Hendersonville is a very wealthy area, very safe area, breathtakingly beautiful area, if you've ever been there before. And this was a church that was growing by reaching the growing population of retiring baby boomers. Because Hendersonville is a retirement community. That's pretty much all it is. It's just a gigantic retirement community. And, and so here were the pluses. We're in a breathtakingly beautiful area. Uh, we have people coming to us who have great wealth and they support our ministry. We don't have financial issues. We're not in debt. We have a beautiful, immaculate building. We pay our staff incredibly well. And then at the bottom was the fine print. Anyone applying to become the pastor here should recognize who we are and the fact that we don't want to change who we are. We're a retirement community, so we don't want anybody coming in with the intention of reaching younger people or especially children because we have enough of that with our grandchildren. And so if you are content with coming in, preaching really good sermons, and burying us when we die, Please apply for the job. And Amy and I looked at each other and said, no, thank you. Right? That, that's not what we want. This is precisely the threat we see at Sardis. And in this passage, Jesus is going to teach us something. What do you do when the fire starts to die? What do you do when you reach a certain age, like that church in Hendersonville, and you, you are tempted to think, well, I can just step out. Hey, Moses was just getting started at 80. Some of y'all need to get back up off the seat, especially as we're coming out from under this pandemic. How do you do? But, but underneath all of that, we also don't want it to be a transactional relationship with your church or with your Lord, like a marriage that's kind of hit a dry spell. There's got to be a passion there. So, so what do you do when the passion is dying? Well, the first thing you got to do is recognize your reality. Look at verse 1. And to the angel of the church at Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So he starts by saying, you, you have this reputation. People think well of you. Uh, and on the surface, they have no reason to think otherwise. There's no rancor among you. Everybody's getting along really well. Everybody's really nice to each other. Apparently, you have good doctrine. You're orthodox of all the critique we're about to see. Heresy was not on that list, so that's not a problem. People think of you warmly. It's almost as if Jesus opens up with that, that sarcastic sort of backhanded compliment of, I've, I've heard this awful rumor that you're nice people. And, and so they're wondering, well, what's the problem? What's going to go on here? What is it that he's going to critique in us? Well, here's the thing. He's saying those impressions of you really don't mean a whole lot. Because the one who has the seven spirits of God, that's a figurative way of expressing the unity in perception between God the Son, who's issuing judgment, and God the Spirit, who's empowered, who, who resides in the souls of each real believer and resides among that community in its worship. He also has the seven stars. That's a nod toward the spiritual authority that he's left in these seven churches, the pastors, essentially. It, it's both a recognition and a warning 
to those leaders. Pastors, what you think of this church is completely irrelevant if it doesn't line up with my opinion of this church. And then we see the assessment of Jesus. He says, I am the Lord of the church. I know you better than your pastors. I know you better than your community knows you. I know you better and more intimately than you know each other. And here is my assessment of you. You're just a bad church. That had this sting. Where'd that come from? And why is he being so critical? Well, he says here, you are known for having life, but you're actually dead. If you look at that word for dead, Matthew 18, Luke chapter 7, Hebrews 9, also contain this exact same word, and every single time it's used, it's intended to communicate a picture of a dead body, a corpse. So when you see Jesus say here, you have this reputation for being alive, but actually you're dead, you need to really get a, a graphic visual in your mind of a body lying in state, in a funeral home, at the front of a church building, but because that's the picture that he's trying to draw for people. I, I know, just a little, little extra excursus here, uh, if, if you're ever trying to comfort a grieving family while they're gathered around the casket, there are some things that you can say that will bring comfort. And there are things that you can say that will bring no comfort to them. It will make you feel like you've said something substantive when, in fact, you have said something stupid. So I'm about to give you some pointers, okay? You get up. You put your arm around them. They're, they're staring down at, at sort of taking, probably, particularly if they're at the church, the very last glimpse they're ever going to have in this world of the remains of their loved one. Tell them what a wonderful person he or she was. Tell them how very sorry you are. Do not, do not, do not say, doesn't he look good? He's dead. No, no. That's what Jesus is saying, though. He's like, when people are saying the things they're saying about you, Sardis, that's basically, they're just gathering around your casket talking about how good you look. And yeah, you look good. Somebody put makeup on you. Somebody dressed you up in a really nice suit. There's not a hair out of place. There's also no blood flowing. There's also no oxygen in your lungs. You have a reputation for looking good. On the inside, there's nothing there. Nothing. And that has to be hard for these people to hear, you know? But he wants them to recognize this reality. And sometimes, particularly when things seem on the outside to be going really well, harsh words are necessary to provide a shock factor, especially when, when complacency has absorbed your life, when you're satisfied with where you are. And this can happen to entire churches. I, I probably... If I've got something I need to make improvements on right now, it's probably to be as much in prayer at this moment as I was about two and a half years ago. I don't know if there's a time in the time I've been privileged to be your pastor where I was on my knees more than about the last three months of 2018 and the first three months of 2019 because two things happened. Number one, we paid off a $3.5 million debt that we had 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 labored under since 2001. And number two, we were starting to grow and experience some sweet, sweet fellowship. And what I did not want was for that to lead us into a place of complacency. And I remember talking to the Lord and going, Lord, please don't let me, because some of these folks, and listen, I understand, I don't think it's wrong for them to be passionate about this for me from the time I arrived here was we got to get this debt paid off. We got to get this debt paid off. We got to, of course we do. But God, please don't let us fall for the delusion that that's the end. 
Help us to see that that's merely the beginning. Help us to see that there's a lot of work to do beyond all of that. Wake us up and help us to be vigilant and help us to understand that the end vision is not the burning of a mortgage. That's not it. Don't let us be content to rest once things are better and say all is well when this is done. But even if those moments do come and we give in to those temptations, there's only one way out. And it starts with embracing honestly and in humility what the Lord tells us about spiritual complacency. Sometimes it's good for me to be shocked when the Lord says, you're dying. Rainy, I know your A1C is in better shape than it was a year ago. I'm talking spiritually, it's not good. You're going downhill, not uphill. It's getting worse, not better. Because it's only at that point that you can repent of your spiritual sleep. Jesus says in verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You're not done yet. That's what he's saying. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. This is the the deadly danger of what I call a good enough mentality. We're paying the bills. That's good enough. Everything's going great. We get along with one another. There's no huge controversy going on here. It's good enough. Jesus will counter that assumption by saying, now you're not done. You're not done. Your works are not complete. They're not fulfilled. You still have more to do. And and here's the, the big idea. When it comes to Jesus, partial obedience is disobedience. And partial truth is false teaching. And this is the gap that is I'll go ahead and say it, is least often closed in the lives of people who have grown up in churches like ours. Evangelical churches which teach that forgiveness comes instantaneously, and it does, that justification happens at a punctiliar moment in time, and it does, but who sometimes in our emphasis on conversion miss what we should be teaching because it's what God's Word teaches about sanctification, that you're not done. You must complete what has been begun in you. God will do that in you, but you have some work to do here. And that's the gap. It's understanding that there's a distinction between confession and repentance. Confession is the admission of wrong. Confession is the apology. Repentance is fixing the problem. Not a parent in this room has had that, had that conversation with your children. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And you heard I'm sorry for the 48,000th time, and you're done, right? When your kid's 11, when your kid's 15, when your kid's 19, and they keep doing the same thing, and they say, and what do you say as a parent? If you, and you're telling the truth, by the way. Some of you may have said this and you felt guilt. Don't you feel any guilt? You just keep on saying that sorry doesn't fix it, because it doesn't. It begins a process, potentially, but, but if there's no continued repentance, which is what Sardis is being called to here, we, we've got to move from confession to repentance. Some people apologize for their hot temper repeatedly, but they still have a hot temper. Some people apologize for the way they mistreat people or assume the worst, but then they go right back to doing the very thing they did, and they don't 
stop. Some people apologize to their families for their various sins of addiction, but they don't make the concerted effort to stop, to repent. And to do so empowered by the Holy Spirit, because we admit as followers of Jesus, that's the only way you can successfully do it. But God's provided a way for you to do that, to change course. And this also has to happen when the church gets off course. Sometimes churches can get off course when they lose passion completely. And sometimes we can get off course when we exchange our passion for the right things for passion for the wrong things. Right? Don't get sidetracked. Don't get sidetracked. Don't exchange your passion for God for passion for something else. I Probably the... the the place I see this most prominently today is all the manner of parachurch organizations that call themselves discernment ministries. All right, these are ministries they make all of their money and they build all of their followers off of controversy and sensationalism. All right? We'll give you the, you know, the newest thing in prophecy fulfillment. Or we're going to tell you who the latest enemy is to fight. And if you'll just send us 50 bucks, we'll fight them for you. And you can still sit at home and eat Cheetos and not have to accomplish God's mission for your life because you sent us 50 bucks. Right? That, that's what happens. And so it, it, it's, it's, if it just happens in an individual's life, you, you just lost 50 bucks. Okay? But when that kind of stuff begins to infiltrate the body, right? Every, and I'll just be honest with you. Every single interruption or, or tempted side road that I have witnessed to our mission here, which is pretty simple, growing passionate followers of Jesus who serve all people. That's what we do here. Every attempt to knock us off the rails has come from something like this. Somebody read a discernment blog. Somebody fell for a conspiracy theory. Somebody's been listening to a parachurch leader more than their pastors. Somebody's worried to death about some threat to the culture. Or they bought into the false notion that somebody in the church that might have a different opinion that they, than, than, than they do or the enemy. And they imputed all of that into their church and just assumed if the battle's going on out here, it must be going on in here. And then demand that the leaders take a side. And, and one of the things that we learn in, in Sardis is that, that this isn't new. This has been happening for 2,000 years. It happened in Galatia. Paul asked the Galatians, who had been distracted by what? Judaizers, right? Remember that from last year? Knock them completely off mission. What did he say to them? Who's bewitched you? Who's brainwashed you into believing all this nonsense? Who did that? And sometimes the leaders have to do that. Sometimes Jesus speaks into an environment. In, in the years that I've been privileged to, to, to be in ministry, the area, I'm just going to be honest with you, where I have seen this cause the most damage to the body of Christ and its mission is in the area of eschatology, the return of Jesus. Now, we believe in the return of Jesus. I'm going to spend all summer in a series called The Return of the King. We're going to talk about the return of Jesus. We believe in it. We anticipate it. We look forward to it. But you can also become a prophecy fanatic. All right? 
It's one thing to anticipate the return of Jesus. Be excited about that. Let that give you focus. Let that give you motivation. Put steel in in your back as you share the gospel with other people. Give you a positive outlook for the king and the kingdom that he's about to bring. It's another thing for some of y'all to go absolutely into orbit every time the prime minister of Israel has a bad case of gas. Okay? (laughs) Calm the heck down. And, and, and some of you, you, you <laughs> prophecy, let's talk about prophecy. Do we believe in it? Of course we do. But you got about 95% of what you need right there. Some of these idiots that have been prophesying all this stuff that was going to happen in America over the last six months and it didn't happen, they're false prophets. You know, who are you to judge that? Well, I'm nobody. But the word of God is their judge. And the word of God says, if a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and the thing which he has prophesied does not happen, he's a false prophet. That's what it says. So the best thing I can say about those idiots is that they just need to be thankful they're living under the new covenant. Because if they were living under Moses, we'd be stoning them to death right now. And some of y'all still buying their books and looking at their YouTube crap. Pastor, why don't you listen to the prophets? Because they're not prophets. This is when you exchange passion for God and the gospel and the word. All right? You got a steak dinner over here. You want a bag of cheesecake-flavored M&Ms. <laughs> That's what you're after. All right? So don't lose your passion, but don't exchange your passion. And when you exchange your passion... And you get a pastor that, that lovingly says, yeah, no, no, that's not a repudiation of you. That's love that says, hey, let, let us give you a nice little tender, loving tug back into the lane you belong in so that you don't get misdirected. Don't get absorbed in things that, let's just be honest, in, in two years from now, they won't even matter anymore. They won't even matter. And I've met people like that my entire ministry. And it's a cycle, right? They, they, they buy into this stuff. They get all absorbed in it. They, they make all kinds of enemies. And then everything falls apart. And they're like, well, I guess I was wrong. And then two years later, they do it again. Fall for it again. It's like, repent. This is good for you to stop doing these things. Don't exchange passion for the right for passion, for the wrong. And whether this happens on a church or on an individual level, that's the answer. Repent. That's a military term, by the way. So people in Sardis and this large military installation, they would have understood that. It simply meant about face. And that's what Jesus is prescribing when he says, the way you repent is by strengthening what remains and is about to die. Stop doing what you're doing. Start doing what you're supposed to be doing, and don't let this happen again. Yeah, don't, don't, don't just keep assuming the worst and apologizing. Stop assuming the worst. Don't just fall for this nonsense and then just keep doing it. Stop falling for the nonsense. Repent. Otherwise, and here's the warning, I will come like a thief. I wonder who in front of me or who may be watching from home has ever been robbed. I'm not talking about a gunpoint. I'm talking about you, you went away on vacation, you went out to dinner, you came back, 
Somebody kicked your front door in. There was all kinds of stuff missing. People turned over furniture. And it just, apart from the violation that you feel in a moment like that, is the shock that you feel. Because it's not something you expected to come home to. And that's what Jesus is appealing to here. That's what he's appealing to. He's saying, I, I love you. You have this great reputation that is not true. You're actually dying. And here's what I expect out of you. And by the way, I'm not going to send another warning. I'm just simply going to come and I'm going to take your witness. You're going to come back. You're going to show up one Sunday morning and go, where's our witness? Like, who took our witness? I'm going to take it out of the city. And it appears, sadly, like this is exactly what happens. If you go to Sardis today, there's an old Byzantine church building that was erected just a few hundred years after this letter was penned. But that church building is not the church of Sardis. 74 million Turkish citizens in that republic today, 3,500 evangelical Christians among them. He took their witness out of the city because they would not repent of their complacency. You know, the second hardest thing most people ever have to do is to admit they're wrong. But the hardest thing is to repent of the wrong. And so we've, we've got to take an extra step here. I think that's what Jesus calls us to so that we don't get misdirected. Here's the good news. If you do that, there is a wonderful promise waiting on you if you renew your focus. Look at verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So apparently there's still a remnant here, a remnant of faithful people whose passion for Jesus is still white hot, and Jesus features them here. It's almost like he's pointing to them as an example, all right? In the 11 years Prior to my coming here, I, I served a network of 560 churches. And so I got the opportunity to preach in a lot of different places, including a lot of churches that would, would have reminded you of Sardis. Wonderful people, nice people, no real issues, not a lot of toxicity or, or arguments or anything like that going on in the congregation, but just sort of resting in their complacency. Very happy to watch the 10% or so in their body who are working their hearts out for the Lord just continue to work those hearts out while they did nothing. And Jesus says of those people, you are the ones who will walk with me in white. And this is a passive way of saying to the rest of the congregation, these are the kinds of people who are going to be rewarded in the end. And if you will repent and get with the program, you can be included. And by the way, he makes that promise to everybody. This isn't just a letter of condemnation. This is a letter that speaks truth for the purpose of invitation. You, you come to me. And if you truly repent, I will not berate you. I will not harm you. I will not condemn you. We can fix this lifestyle of yours. We can change the heart that you have. I can give you new life. That's what's expressed in this invitation. It's also expressed in this way. He says, I will not blot your name from the book of life. That phrase makes some people nervous sometimes. See, we at Covenant believe that once someone is actually a believer in Christ, when they are legitimately, genuinely converted and belong to Jesus, they can never again be lost. We believe that soul is eternally secure 
And so some of you may wonder, well, if that's true, what, what does this text mean? And I think this is important to, it, it's important at a point like this to remember what's intended. Don't read these words as though they occur in a vacuum. When you compare this to the way the phrase book of life is used in other places in Scripture, and I'll just give you a few examples, Psalm 69, 28, Exodus 32, Daniel chapter 12, Jesus is just employing Old Testament language and, and metaphor. This doesn't concern the permanency of whether salvation can be lost, but here's what it does refer to. Who really belongs to Jesus? Who really belongs? What's going to happen when that thief finally and unexpectedly comes? What's going to happen? Because here's the Here's the bottom line, guys. Jesus is not merely talking to Sardis. This is God's word to us. I could come for you at any moment. Your life could be gone at any second. Don't hesitate to come to me. Don't delay. Don't wait. And when you come, come with passion. And come with urgency. And you will walk with me in white. He put it this way in Matthew chapter 10. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is looking for courageous people and passionate people. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One of the most intimidating passages in the Pentateuch first five books of the Old Testament, occurs in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 47. It's an announcement of judgment. Israel is being told here, you're going to serve your enemies. And here's why. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. So let me ask you again, what are you passionate about? What are you really truly passionate about. There was a lot of idolatry in Sardis, like there was in all seven of these cities that we're going to look at. A lot of false worship. Easy for us to see their shortcomings. Take a trip 2,000 years back, and we look even now at the ancient ruins of the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Cybel, and we say to ourselves, how in the world could they have been so foolish? But I, I have to wonder particularly as we come out from under this pandemic and things get back to normal, as most people suspect they will be, if not this summer, then, then later this fall. If those individuals living in that world could come forward 2,000 years, what would they see? What would they see? Would they see a people who are complacent, who have lost their passion? Would they see a people who've exchanged the right passion for the wrong passion. Here, here's, here's what I fear that they might see. I fear they would come back and they would very easily locate our pagan temples. Football, basketball, and baseball stadiums. Concert venues. And just in case we got somebody new to the church, no, I don't think sports are sinful. Ask anybody in this room who's been here longer than 15 minutes. I am a raging fan of college football. I'm not calling it sin. I'm asking, what's the, what's the disposition of my heart toward that event compared to the disposition of my heart toward God? For some of you, it won't be sports. It'll be 
Capitol Hill. It'll be the White House. It'll be where, where's your focus? Where's your passion? Where's all, all your angst, all this stuff? Where's that stuff aimed? But I think for most of us, it'd be sitting in a stadium. I think those people would be very impressed with, with our passion. The amount of money we spend just to get in. The way we dress as we go in there, wearing these wild colors that we would never wear anywhere else. The homage that we pay to the gladiators on the field or on the court, the passionate cheers. And then they might be a little bit puzzled if this were to occur on a Saturday to see the very next day some of those same people enter the house of the Lord, mundane, going through the motions, or some of them not even coming at all. Some of them going to another game. Is this you? The greatest commandment Jesus told us is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, which is another way of saying serve him, but don't do it from duty. Don't do it just so things look nice. Serve him with passion that stirs from the depth of your heart. And if you say this morning, I don't have that, you can. You can. Ask him for it and seek after it. And here's the good news. Dead things don't grow, but living things do. And all the parents said amen, right? They do. And it may not happen overnight, but, but the challenge is to commit yourself today to run from complacency and to give him everything. And the promise being this, be prepared as a result to walk with him in white and to do it for the rest of eternity. Heavenly Father, thank you for the challenge. Thank you for the promise. Thank you for your people. Thank you, Lord, that you do come to us just as we are. So there's not a person in here that has to walk out feeling the weight of guilt that, Lord, you will meet us and you will change us and you will set us free. And so I ask you, Father, in the name of Jesus, to do that very thing right now. Lord, turn our eyes back toward you. And as the, the accurate words of that old hymn remind us, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Lord, spare us from a transactional relationship with you. Spare us from a transactional relationship with each other. Reignite our passion. Make us one. Use us for your glory and your honor in powerful ways. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.